You're listening to episode 116 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. What's up, storytellers? Some of you in our private Facebook group or those of you who follow us on Twitter or Instagram may already know that I have been out of commission the past few days and was in the ER for stomach ulcer issues. If this is your first time hearing about that, I just wanted to say thank you so much for waiting patiently for the release of our final episode of the year. I am so sorry I had to postpone the release and push it back by a day. I was honestly feeling so frustrated and stressed out that I couldn't get any work done in the hospital or when I was in bed rest. And funny enough, I'm actually currently in bed rest still while I'm recording this. I ended up receiving the most thoughtful and kindest reminders from our very own community of listeners that these ulcers are a sign to slow down and put my health first. There were so many of you who wrote in and I was so, so touched. Uh, We have a listener, Chris Campbell, from our private Facebook group who specifically reminded me to not only take care of myself, but he also said something that really stood out. He said that I can't build others up if I myself am falling apart. So thank you, Chris, for that reminder. And thank you to all of you wonderful listeners for thinking of me and wishing me well and writing me ridiculously sweet messages and comments. It's so crazy to me how healing it is to have a community that lifts you up. So again, thank you for being there and for your uplifting words. I appreciate them so much. This is also kind of the perfect way to end 2017, as we usually take a month-long break at the end of the year for 88 Cups of Tea. We'll be back in February with brand new episodes to kick off 2018, and in the meantime, I'm going to make sure that I get all my health stuff checked out and squared away so I can come back with my A-game. And there are some other things that might be happening around January in my personal life, so I'll need some time to get that all settled as well. I know that taking a month off might be a long time for many of you, so if you miss us and you want to stay connected, come join us over in our private Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. We will be active there and you'll also get to hear about all of our updates that relate to the podcast and life overall. Again, that's facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. I wanted to also do some birthday shout outs to the December babies in our private Facebook group. A very happy, happy birthday to Douglas G. Pratt, Maika Mulit, Vanessa Valiente, Vanessa Andrew, Kay Mack, Yasmin Fisher, my friend Carlise Burke, and Casey Brown. I hope you all have the most incredible time celebrating, and what an awesome way to end 2017. Before we introduce today's guest, could I ask you a big favor? If you've been listening to 88 Cups of Tea for quite some time, or if you recently came across our show and really connect with our content, first off, thank you so much for listening in and being a part of what makes this community so special. Could you please take a minute to subscribe to us on iTunes if you haven't already? And if you have any extra time this holiday, it would be a huge help to me if you could leave a rating and a review on our iTunes page. If you have an iPhone and you're not really sure how to leave a review, just head over to the purple colored podcast app that's already installed in your phone and search for 88 Cups of Tea in that app. 
I know that in the older version, there was a button towards the top where you could click to specifically leave a rating and a review. In my newer software update of the podcast app, you have to search for 88 cups of tea and then click on our big logo at the top, which then finally brings you to our show notes page. And that's where you can scroll down past the recent episodes to find the section that says ratings and reviews. I wish it was a much easier process and I'm sorry that it's so many steps, but I really appreciate your help. We're trying to get the word out about our podcast and the more our listeners subscribe combined with leaving a rating and a review, I heard that's a way for iTunes to make us more visible to new listeners. So thank you again for your time and for helping us grow our community. I am so excited to finally share our last episode of the year with you featuring none other than Nettie Okorafor, also lovingly referred to as a sci-fi fantasy legend. Nettie is an international award-winning novelist of African-based science fiction, fantasy, and magical realism for both children and adults. She's most recognized for weaving African culture into creative evocative settings and memorable characters. Some of the titles she's authored are Who Fears Death, The Akata Series, The Binti Novella Trilogy, Zara the Windseeker, and many more. Her novel, Who Fears Death, has been optioned by HBO and is in early development as a TV series with George R.R. Martin from the Game of Thrones series as an executive producer. As if all these accolades and achievements weren't enough, Nettie is also currently writing a Black Panther series for Marvel. In describing Nettie and her work, the New York Times wrote, Nettie Okorafor has made a name for herself with novels that combine politically complex science fiction and lyrical fantasy. In this episode today, Nettie walks us through her research process for the Akata series, and she also shares what her writing process was like for the books. We discuss the power of listening and how it helps you with your writing, how to find an ideal editor for your story, and why she encourages writers to have a messy first draft. We also touch on her thoughts about expanding one's worldview and how science fiction helps authors craft stories about cultures and politics. For our listeners who are busy moms, look out for Nettie's helpful advice on managing a storytelling career and motherhood. I've been so excited to wrap up 2017 with Nettie's episode. Now let's jump right in. Nettie, I'm so happy to have you on the show. You have a lot of fans in our community. A lot. They really respect and admire you. They really look up to you. And I'm going to share some fan comments for you that they shared in our private Facebook group. I think we have two questions for you. But other than that, everyone was really excited and jumping in saying, yay, I would love to know today's Tuesday. How was your weekend? (laughs) My weekend was great. It was busy. busy. I'm always busy. It's crazy, but good. Good. Okay, I was going to say, because you sounded a little hesitant. If you knew all the things that I'm juggling right now, I can't even explain it. What is happening right now is wonderful, but it's a lot of juggling and I get agitated when I have to move things around. My weekend was really quite busy, but in a good way. NPR today listed Akata Warrior as one of the best books of 2017. So congratulations on that. Thank you. That was very awesome. Akata Warrior. It was six years of me writing that thing and it was a lot. I needed those six years. For an accolade like that, I'm just beaming. I'm just delighted. I am so excited for you. So since we're on Akata Warrior, why don't Mm -hmm. we jump into that I know you first started with Akata Witch. For listeners who have not had a chance to grab your books yet, would you mind giving them a snapshot from your own words? 
gosh, it's so hard to describe <laughs> Akata Witch and Akata Warrior. I just call them the Akata books, which is really what Akata means. The Akata books take place in present-day Nigeria. The main character is Nigerian-American. So she was born in the United States. She has two Nigerian immigrant parents and two brothers. They're all from Nigeria. She was born in the United States. And then the story begins after her family has moved back to Nigeria when she was nine. The story starts when she's 12. Our main character is a blend of many things. So she's American. She's Nigerian. She speaks Igbo with an American accent. She says soccer instead of football. On top of that, she happens to have albinism. She's got all of these cultural things and personal things and identity issues that are swirling around. Then one day she finds out through her friends that she is part of a magical society in Nigeria. And this is not Harry Potter. This magical society is based on a real society, the Ekpe society, the leopard people. Then adventures ensue. That's what the Akata books are about. It deals with Nigerian mysticism, magic, but also issues of identity as well. I was doing so much reading. I forget which article that I got this from, but when I found out that you asked your uncle originally Uh, about the society, I know what he said just reading the article, but do you mind sharing what he said to you and what led you to that curiosity and how you found out about it in the first place? It's really something. The Ekpe Society, which is the Leopard Society, is based in southeastern Nigeria. That's Igbo land and also amongst the ethnic people as well. One of the things that led to the entire series of Akata books was, I think it has a lot to do with me being Nigerian-American, but that's a whole different thing. But whenever I would go to Nigeria, I'd just be fascinated by a lot of things. A lot of things that would catch my eye that most Nigerians would not notice because they're used to that. For me, anything that was forbidden, anything that had mystery around it or secrecy would attract me. I happened to be talking to my uncle I had heard about the magical writing script called Insibidi. I'd heard some people talking about it, and I'm like, of course, magical writing script that's based in Igbo land and amongst the ethic. I was fascinated, and I wanted to know more. I did research, found nothing. One day when I was in Nigeria, of course, I always like to ask questions and always like to listen. And I asked my granduncle, who was very old, it was Insibidi that I asked him about. And when I asked him, I said, oh, have you heard of this Insibidi? And I showed him a little sketch of one of the symbols. And his response was to try to save me. (laughs) He said, oh, don't ask about that. You shouldn't be asking about that. And then it went into him trying to save me as a Christian. And he also called me heathen. He said, you're a heathen for asking (laughs) this. And then all of that. That made me more curious. (laughs) I was going to say me too. I'm on to something now. That's crazy because you were able to unearth quite a lot of facts. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that because you couldn't find anything online. When Mm -hmm. I was searching, maybe I wasn't searching, right? But I couldn't find that much. I only found this one article that was linked to the other article where it was mentioned when you were talking to your granduncle about it. Mm -hmm. Other than that, I wasn't really aware of it. Aside from your granduncle, were you able to get more information from other neighbors, families, friends? How did that come about to dig up all of that? It was in multiple ways. Back then, and this is only a few years ago, I've learned a lot about research from my graduate student years. That was one of the biggest lessons I learned. And there's something about when you're researching something that has not been written about a lot or that has secrecy around it, Because of that secrecy within the group of people who has the knowledge, they will not share their information with the outside world. Or when they do, it's wrong. They'll hold some things back or they'll give wrong information. There's a way that you have to go about unearthing that information. And so I learned that during my graduate years. So it's sort of coming at it from the side. Back then, especially when I wrote Akata Witch, I would find various symbols in cloths at the market. And usually when I asked about those symbols, the person selling it either didn't know what it was 
or if they did, they would not want to tell me or they tell me a little bit. So I'd get little bits of information bit by bit by bit. And then as the years progressed, there were other people who were also curious about, especially in Sibiti. And now you can find more research about it because people started unearthing more, especially academics and writers as well. And artists started unearthing it more. So it's come forward. But really, at that time, it had to be through word of mouth. You had to ask the right person and ask the right question and ask at the right time and be listening at the right time to get that little, little nugget of information. I'm very, very impressed. You're like Harriet the Spy over here. (laughs) You mentioned you listen very carefully. And I do feel as a storyteller, it's so important to listen more than you talk. Have you resonated with that throughout your storytelling journey? And how has listening helped you more than it has talking? Yeah, definitely. I'll approach the last question. The way that it helps you when you listen is that it helps you get out of your own point of view. And that's been key because let's say someone is expressing a point of view that is so against every part of your being and you can't stand it. What do you do? You talk back, especially Americans. We talk back. That's true. We discuss. It's a back and forth. But there's something to sitting back and listening and not talking back. There's an agony to it, first of all. I've got my American side. It's very hard for me Mm -hmm. to hear those other ways of thinking. And so as a writer, that's really useful because if you're going to write from those points of view that are not natural to you, that are outside of yourself, sitting back and listening is one of the best ways to grab. And I've written about characters who think and behave and have a completely different point of view from me. And I have to get into their heads and I have to see what they would really do. Even if I don't want them to do that, I have to see what they would really do. Honestly, it's agitating and it's irritating when I'm writing it, but that's how I get to it. When I sit back, that ability to sit back and listen as a storyteller is just so important. And it's funny because when people look at storytellers, we talk, we tell Mm -hmm. stories, but in the gathering of it, you have to be able to listen to other stories. That is very, very tantamount to really telling a story to spitting it back. So yeah, that's something that I've done. I remember in my novel, Who Fears Death, there were some points of view that I had to express that were so against what I believed. And I remember people reading those points of views and getting very upset and angry and thinking that I was aligning myself with those points. I'm like, no, this is just the character. And it was not easy for me to write that either. Mm-hmm. But this is real. I was just thinking throughout this whole thing. My mom would love you as her daughter because I'm just assuming you never talk back to your mom growing up. Oh, no. I, oh, no. I used to never talk back. Then my teenagers came in and she beat my ass. I'm the oldest daughter. Then my little sisters grew up. My middle sister talks back a lot. But my mama <laughs> just lets her be it. I really resonated what you said just now about listening and listening carefully. And I, I think that's something that I'm personally working on too. I know it's awful. Don't ever talk back to your parents, listeners, mm-hmm. listening yeah. in. Don't ever. Right. Agree. <laughs> the thing is, I think it's just still struggling with that where it's so Americanized thinking where it's our opinions are sometimes the only opinions that many people yeah. think. And it's always the right opinions. Yeah. That's something that I always go head to head with my mom. And thank God she brought me traveling and made me watch news in mm-hmm. other worlds perspectives. I'm like, oh, OK, I get yeah. it. This is the real world perspective. But I absolutely agree with everything that you said. And I had to learn that after a while. And I'm glad that I finally did. When I was doing readings about you, oh God, I sound like a stalker, excuse me. (laughs) 
the internet's for. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I really admire your parents, your mom, especially. I was listening to your interviews, but I had it on loud and I am visiting my family right now. So my mom was overhearing and my mom in the background was like, incredible, incredible woman, incredible about you and your mom. So I just have to pass that along. I have to say your mom is so strong. My mom resonated a lot during when you were sharing your mom's story. So it really (laughs) hit home with me. I feel like Nigerian culture, I see a lot of similarities with traditional Taiwanese culture, traditional Mm -hmm. Asian cultures during my parents and grandparents days. Could you describe the Nigerian culture? I know this is going to be a big question, but what it means to be an Igbo woman, especially because it's a patriarchal society. Yeah. Well, first, remember, my point of view is Nigerian American. That always needs to be remembered because it's very complicated. But to be Nigerian American also means to be Nigerian. So Mm -hmm. I was raised within that. So I know it. I know it well. And I know what Igbo culture, what role it has played in the decisions that I've made in my life and how things would have been different if it weren't for that. So what I know is that Igbo culture is, I say Igbo because there are many ethnic groups in Nigeria and they all have their own distinctive ways. Both of my parents are Igbo. That's what I am. And my daughter's father, he's 100% Igbo too. So that's what my daughter is. So Igbo culture is extremely patriarchal. It is. In describing it, it's going to come from the Nigerian American point of view. So Mm -hmm. I just feel like I have to keep saying that because that's the lens that I look through this with. So to have sons is the most valuable thing. And the reason for that is traditionally to have sons means that the sons will carry on the name. The name Mm -hmm. is immortality. When you have daughters, it's assumed that they will get married. And when they get married, it's assumed that they will change their name. So therefore, they will become a part of someone else's family. Mm -hmm. So they don't stay. That's where that whole sons being valuable comes from, because traditionally, girls leave, boys stay. But traditionally as well, Igbo women are very powerful. They do have autonomy within the culture. They have their own money. They're known for being self-sufficient. But because that patriarchal hold, all the money that a woman makes is her husband's money. So that's where the patriarchal comes from. It's hard to describe all of it. Igbos have their own cosmology. We have our own days of the week. We have our own calendar. The Igbo people are known to be very democratic. That's why there's a known phrase of Igbos have no royalty. We tend to have small communities where there's a chief and there's more equality within those communities. So this idea of a royal empire is foreign to Igbos. And that has led to a lot of things when colonialization happened. So there's that. And so these things kind of manifest themselves in me in weird ways, because I have a thing where you don't see me writing about royalty. Typically, this idea of importance being passed on through blood just doesn't work for me. And that's why it's been interesting writing Black Panther because of that. That's another topic. But yes, that's a little bit of Igbo culture. That would be a whole many, many hours of talk. I appreciate that. That was a quick overview. I think that's a great way just to introduce a little bit to, especially for listeners who are not familiar. Listeners listening in, please, I do encourage you to do your own research as well. This is a great little crack in the doorway just for you to see how much more there is to cultures. I love your female characters. They're very, very strong. And I want to know, again, me as a Chinese Malaysian American, Mm -hmm. I see you and your mom are so admirable. I want to know when you visit family and friends in Nigeria, how Mm -hmm. is your mom and how are you viewed? I know that you are a Nigerian American. There is a term as a proper Igbo woman, right? Yeah. In your friends and neighbors and relatives in Nigeria, how are you viewed? through their lens. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of it has been my mom. Okay, we'll start with my mother. My mother 
is extraordinary in many ways. And mind you, this does not mean that I don't butt heads with my mother all the time. <laughs> We're just butting heads right before you call. <laughs> Okay. Oh my God, me and my mom too. So you know how that is. And if we didn't butt heads, that's not a real relationship. I mean, come yes, on. Yes, yes. That's what it is. It's strong women butt heads. Yeah. But my mom is incredible. And so is my dad for different reasons. My mom is incredible. First of all, she was extremely smart during a time when education for girls was not really that encouraged. She's of that generation where you were supposed to get married and get married and have lots of kids. That's mm. what's important in Evo culture. Once you have your 10th child, yeah. that is when you've really arrived as a woman. Ouch. Yeah, exactly. No comment on that. She was really smart. And she was also, as a little girl, my mom, and oh God, I hope she doesn't kill me for saying this. <laughs> my mom used to fight a lot. Oh, <laughs> fight a lot and she would climb trees and do all of these terrible things that she was not supposed to do but she got away with it why because she was extremely smart and one thing that Ebo's love is education mm. if you were smart in school you can get away with a lot more my mother went on to be the valedictorian of basically every class she was in from grade school to college she was always a, then on top of that she was extremely athletic so when she was in college, she threw the javelin and made the Olympic team for the javelin wow. and what was traveling all over Africa. So she was both athlete and extremely smart and then extremely beautiful on top of that. So it's, uh, she had that, <laughs> like all of these things going for her. But She's perfect. Her father, he was highly educated too. He was an electrician. And so he pushed her, which was mm. rare for fathers back then to do. He pushed her towards wow. education. My mom, she was a midwife, a registered nurse, and then she went on to earn her PhD in health administration. And, and it was my father, who was also extraordinary, who encouraged my mother to go for that PhD. And this was wow. in the day when that was not the norm. So amongst the Evos, if you're, and I'm generalizing, but whatever, it, the more education you have, mm. you, you know, they will respect you. <laughs> you see some random Nigerian who has three PhDs, it's typically an Evo, <laughs> because that's what we do. So me, I have two masters and a PhD and I'm a professor. And then I'm also a writer. And then my mom being who she is with all of her education. So when we go back, there's a respect there, despite the woman thing. I see. And on the bottom of the totem pole, because I'm the third girl of uh -huh. kids, and then I have my brother. So I'm the last. I'm nothing. But when you're highly educated, you are treated with a sort of reverence that you would not get otherwise as a woman, which is really interesting, kind of cool. It's so crazy how paralleled your family stories resonate with so much with my mom's side too, because my mm -hmm. mom grew up in Malaysia. Mm -hmm. Granted, it was during the time when Britain was still colonizing it. At the time, women were always looked down upon. Men didn't mm -hmm. want to shake women's hands and they looked down on them, very condescending. Mm -hmm. And it's still kind of like that when I go back and visit. But my grandpa is an artist and he was very, very, very rare, like your grandpa, during his time to push my mom and all three of her younger sisters. So all my aunts got well-rounded education, took ballet and karate, piano, everything. And then he would always tell the girls, he didn't have a son. He always told all his daughters, girls are better than boys. He wanted them to get dirty, to climb trees and all of that and push them with education like crazy. I know for my grandpa, I think it's more so because he's more of an artist. So he's already thinking differently from most people in Malaysia. But for your grandpa, why do you think that he was pushing your mom, especially in a society when that wasn't common yeah. for men to do that to encourage their daughters? Yeah. And this is the part that's uncomfortable. It's because he was exposed to the West. There's always something causes that change. And it's usually something from the outside, hmm. be it thinking differently because you're an artist or being exposed to Western 
thought. Right. He was an engineer and he was working, I think he was an electrician. And during the Biafran War, he was in the north and that was where they were killing Ebos. And the only reason he survived was because basically Europeans smuggled him. You mentioned exposed to Western culture. That was my grandpa too. I forget because before he had my mom and aunts, he got a scholarship and was studying all over Europe and he taught in Michigan and Arbor and NYU. Mm-hmm. It didn't hit me until yeah. you said that. I'm like, oh shit, that's right. I always think there's the exposure, but there's always give and take. There's a give and take. Colonization may have introduced certain ideologies, but colonization also introduced other certain ideologies. Mm-hmm. And we know what those negatives are. Yes, These are things I think about a lot. Also, and I want to make this point, what we're talking about here, the role of men in furthering women. We need to take a moment and note that. And this is why I always say that when we're talking about feminism and we're talking about equality, it can't just come from women. This is a- Men have just as much of a role. Yes. So I just need to note that. I agree with that. Especially more recently, it's always been happening, Mm -hmm. but a lot of news happening. I'm more aware and open to, for example, news more recently in the past few years, a-holes like Brock Turner, for example. What a horrendous- human being along with his father, the father needs to play a role here and step up and be a decent human being in teaching Mm -hmm. the child and raise him Mm -hmm. how to be a decent human being. You Mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? It shouldn't have to take a woman to step up and fight, fight, fight against people not believing the woman. Men have just as much of a role to play in this. It Mm -hmm. ties in with that as well. Just had to get that off my chest. But yes, Mm -hmm. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Wow. Thank you for this discussion. I've been really loving this right now. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. When you were sharing about your mom competing, I'm going to link. I think it was your keynote speech at the fourth Mm -hmm. annual Evo conference. I saw your arms that you inherited from your mom. That was so awesome. I was like, I can't even do one push up. And here she goes doing one arm pull up. Okay. Show off. Third grade. Do you know I failed gym in high school? This is embarrassing. (laughs) This is my first time ever sharing this on the podcast. When I did half of one push-up, my gym coach got up and applauded. It was so embarrassing. So you need to understand, in my world, I'm like, damn, those muscles. I don't care when you did the pull-up. I'm just like, damn, I'm so jealous. I'm still working on it, but I'm sore for a week when I try to do the modified push-ups. It's ridiculous. Nettie, I would also really love to discuss a little bit about, because you mentioned something, you know, talking about that. Now that reminds me about the conference. I was very inspired by what you said in your conference in the keynote speech. You did mention that science fiction acts as a bridge between sciences and the arts and that it reflects the effects of science, technology, socio and political changes on people and their globalized societies. How have you used that specifically as a tool to help you discuss Nigerian culture? I think that science fiction is one of the most effective forms of political writing. And it's because it takes from science and it also takes from the art of storytelling. People underestimate the power of storytelling. It's almost putting people in a trance before you feed them information. Mm. So storytelling can do that. And it can do that with science and also with politics. So there's that. I think that the way that I do it is it's not so much that it's conscious. A lot of what I was saying was after looking at my work in retrospect. When I sat down to write a lot of my stories, it wasn't like I was like, oh, okay, I need to get this information out. I want to do this. It wasn't planned out or mapped out. It wasn't planned at all. But when I look back, I'm like, okay, that's what I was doing. With science fiction, I can give an example. There's a story that I have coming out with the MIT Reviews anthology called 12 Tomorrows, I think it was. In that anthology, I have a short story that I wrote where I was looking at heart transplants that are 3D printed and made from vegetables. 
Wait, spinach. these are this yeah. is like real research. It's real. You can see a beating heart made from spinach leaves right now. What? You can see it. Yes. <laughs> There's footage of it and I had nightmares about it. But anyway, <laughs> it was this thing. It was like in a box. It was, oh, it was spinach leaves. I mean, it was right, but it just seemed not right. You know what I mean? I look at this thing and the speculation is that, okay, we can create heart. Mm-hmm. We can create these artificial hearts, but they're not really artificial because they're made from the cells of the person whose heart they're going to transplant. So if we make these hearts, then this whole problem of heart transplants becomes a non-issue. So there's that. But the way I looked at it, I didn't just look at the science fictional aspect of it. I looked at the idea of how it would affect Nigerian culture and societies. In my story, I have a president who needs this heart transplant. Now, Nigeria is known for having presidents who keep disappearing and leaving the country to have medical attention because the medical attention in the country is so terrible that they leave the country. And that says a lot about the country. So there's that. My story is already addressing that problem. This president is so rational that he brings his own medical team when he comes into office and he already bucks the system in that way. So there's that. So I'm already speaking to that political issue. Then this president is getting this vegetable 3D printed heart transplant. Nigerians can be, and I'm speaking generally, there's a blend of the modern and the traditionals. There's this idea of superstition. When this president is getting what's called a vegetable heart, he has to deal with the fact that he may lose all political support because the Nigerian people don't view him as human anymore. You know? Oh, wow. Yeah. It's almost like a Frankenstein or some type of ghost or something. Yeah. I see. That's not him anymore. He has a mm-hmm. vegetable heart. That is not a human being. This is how I'm looking at the way a people's thinks. Yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's pr- Sounds yeah. good to me. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> you sell it, I'll buy it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's looking at the way a people's thinks and, and then also with the science fictional aspect in there. That's what I mean by reading that story, Nigerians in particular could start looking towards the future and considering the present at the same time. Only science fiction can do that. Nanny, why are you so <laughs> genius? You have no idea how excited I am for my mom to hear this episode. <laughs> and this is not something I ever say. I'm blown away. And also my girlfriend is a co-producer on the show. So she helps me with all the editing. And I'm thinking she's going to have the best time editing this episode. <laughs> cool. She's going to love it so much. Dang, that is so crazy how you're able to weave that in and show a lot of reflection. It is mind boggling to me. Now that I have a deeper understanding and a better grasp of how you're able to weave that in and out of your story ideas. I know that it seems like through my readings and what I've been watching that you don't get writer's block. Nope. You're consistently spitting out stories. I only listed out a few here. You wrote Akata Witch and Who Fears Death in 2011. Not that you wrote it at the same year, but it came out. Yeah, a year apart. A year apart. So then 2017, you had Binti Home and Akata Warrior come up. That's just an example of showing how fast you produced books and multiple different books because I would be confused as hell with my stories and I would probably accidentally, I've never tried it, but I would be that person who would bring one character in from the other story accidentally into another story. Well, first of all, I don't work on multiple stories at the same time. I'm a serial monogamist. Let me explain myself because it does (laughs) look crazy. First of all, there was one year where I had three books come out. It was Book of Phoenix, Binti, and then something else. (laughs) The fact that I have to say something else is really problematic. And it wasn't because I wrote them all at the same time and just was a machine. They were written at different times and they just happened to sell 
at the same time. I see. So okay. That. Okay. Secondly, I do have a lot of projects, but I said that I am a serial monogamous. What I do is I'll work on a book. And when I work on a book, I have to get to the end. I don't stop that book, especially when I'm first writing it. Actually, even if I'm editing it, I have to get to the end. I will not stop until oh. that thing is ended. It's actually a very stressful situation when I'm writing a book. I can't rest until the thing is done. And when it's done, I, oh, I just feel so great. <laughs> I finish that draft. I'll finish that draft. By the time I finish, I can take that break. It's not done, but it's a weight off of my shoulders. Maybe about a week later, I'll get antsy again and start working on something else. Wow, so I'll work okay. on the next thing. And then I'll do that. The way that I learned how to juggle, because even when there's only a week between books, it, there could still be some bleeding over. When I learned that was during my PhD. Because during my PhD, you have your exams, right? And it was mm -hmm. like, what, over like 200 something books that you had three five-hour exams on. There was a long period of time, maybe about a year, where I was reading four books at the same time. What? Every day I was reading four books. One of those books was always a pleasure read. When I did that, I also had, I started my PhD, I had an infant. My God. And I was teaching full-time and I was writing. It was during that time that I learned how to juggle and compartmentalize. The human brain is capable of a lot. I could literally compartmentalize. If I'm reading this particular book, it's that book, it's that world. If I switch over to this book, it's that world. And I keep them separate. That's where I learned how to do that. When I'm writing, like now, I had to write, I returned from Nigeria, and that's what, it's been less than two weeks. The minute I got back, I had to write a script for Marvel. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I finished that. <laughs> I was very focused. I finished that, and I was actually writing it on the airplane, and then I started it in Nigeria. Damn. I finished that, and then the minute I finished it, the next day, no, I waited one day. Then the next day, I was working on this other secret project. It's a book. And then worked on that for several days because I had to edit a major part of it. And then I finished that two nights ago. Oh Today, God. I will start on another Marvel script. So it's like, boom, boom, boom. This is a business time. Listen, you and your vegetable heart. Are you human? <laughs> Should we open up and peek in and see what's happening in there? Nettie, stop it. Like, <laughs> what? You definitely got this from your mom. Yeah. I think it was in your keynote that you mentioned that your mom also was studying her PhD and yeah. had three kids. Three. 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 Yeah. Like, so I can complain because she had three. <laughs> when I told my mom, because my mom always makes it a big deal, because I always give my mom crap. I'm like, yeah, you shouldn't have had me at such a young age. You were only like 22. She's like, you listen here. I was in school and I opened up a company with you yep. in my stomach. Don't you tell me. I have yep. my shit together. The whole like head to head daughter and mom. Mm -hmm. And so then I think my mom's right. I don't have a child and I'm already mm -hmm. feeling overwhelmed. And I feel ashamed when I feel overwhelmed. I don't even have a child on top of that to balance. I don't need to really compartmentalize anything. It just boggles my mind to hear your mom's story, my mom's story, your story. <laughs> I know that you say you compartmentalize and that is very helpful, but anything to scratch the surface a little bit more and dive a little deeper in how to, I guess you can say there's guilt, right? That comes along mm -hmm. when your kid wants yes. to play with you, but then you got to stay disciplined in your writing time and really honor your writing time. Do you have anything to share with them, even if it's parents feeling so guilty, even going away for a weekend to write at a writer's retreat? Or just even tell the kids to not come in the room for an hour. Yeah, I can say plenty on that. <laughs> nice, thank you. I know that mother's guilt thing so well. Yeah. Our world, I wouldn't even say our society, because almost every society is booby-trapped 
with that whole mother's guilt thing. I think the first bit of advice is learn to be selfish and it's okay to be selfish Mm -hmm. because you tell that to mothers and it's balanced. It's not really selfishness. It's just self-care. Learn to be selfish. You are important. Take the time that you need to create those things because in creating, it will bring you happiness that you will then transfer to your child. That's just science. Yes. (laughs) That is science. So there's that. Secondly, keep going. So even if you only have time to write a paragraph a day, write a paragraph a day. Just do that. It eventually adds up. It always eventually adds up. And when you see what it adds up to, automatic satisfaction, you will transfer that to your child. And then thirdly, learn to write when the kids are around. That's what I did. My daughter would be dancing, dancing, woo, 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 around (laughs) me, circles around me. And I'm writing, you know. I remember writing where I was writing with one hand on my computer, the other hand was rocking her in her little bassinet. Get out of here. You are so focused. That's something that I've never heard on the show before is to learn to write with your kids there, but around your kids. It's common to hear right? But then find your own secluded space and all that stuff. I tried finding the secluded space. Trust me. I, the bathroom was a key place. <laughs> but then they figure it out. They I know, heard them I banging on the door. Computers. Yep. Then they come in. <gasps> oh, that's so cute. So- <laughs> Writing in front of your children. And this I've mentioned before, and I'm going to say it again, sets a wonderful example. Growing up, seeing my mom She works from home now, but she's gone to the company a lot and has traveled so much. So I didn't Mm. really have my mom growing up, but all her business paperwork is everywhere. And she's like working, she's doing all these business calls, talking to all Mm -hmm. these people. It's inspiring because now I get to get work done in front of her as well Mm -hmm. next to her. And we have this great almost co-working space. Mm -hmm. And it's just, I'm thankful my mom was a busy ass woman and really hit the ground running because for me, it made me feel like everything was possible and doable. Mm-hmm. I am capable because mom was able to do it. And that's the norm. She set this as a norm in our household. So it's expected and really pushes me to go further. I would love to rewind years. You have a fascinating story, really, really powerful story about how you got into writing. I want your story to be shared. And I think it's so powerful. Oh, yes. And this is something I've been writing a lot about lately. I was an athlete and I was uh, into the science. That's what my identity was. I played semi-pro tennis from the age of nine. And then later on, I ran track and was really good at track. I was that kid who everyone would choose first whenever we had anything in gym class. I was a kid you wanted on your team, especially in dodgeball. Oh, nice. I was always the last. You would be kicking my ass in school. I was just imagining you like going straight at me. (laughs) That was me. I was vicious. I was bloodthirsty. And I loved it. That's awesome. Awesome. That's why your female characters are so badass. Yeah. Dang, I'm like, I think this is really Nettie's yeah. like, reflection about herself. This is awesome. I want to be friends with her. She should have been my protector in school. Darn it. <laughs> yes, I kind of was. I did that with that protector. That was my identity. You know, I was the mm-hmm. athlete and I loved the sciences. I wanted to study bugs. I loved bugs from yes. the day I was born. I've loved bugs. I don't know why. I can't explain it. Or I like see a grasshopper. The delight that I feel oh. is bizarre. It's so bizarre. I don't even know what it is. But I've always been like that. And then around the age of 13, I grew very fast. I went from being relatively average height to tall. I remember the month that it really kicked in where I grew several inches within a month. 
And I remember at one time I felt it happening in my spine. I remember the day, like my spine was doing something weird that it should not have been doing. I was at a tennis tournament between my matches and it just started doing something. When I was 13, I was diagnosed with scoliosis. It's very common and normal. But as I grew older, it grew very, very severe. Scoliosis runs in my family. Both of my sisters have it. My brother has it. But theirs is not as severe as mine. Mine was severe. And it didn't hinder my athletics at all. It was just that my spine was in the shape of an S. By the time I was 19 and I was on the tennis team at U of I. And after that first year, they took an x-ray of my spine and my doctor's like, this is not getting any better. I had worn a back brace through in, in high school for like two years. It was horrible and did the exercises and it just got worse. Gravity just kept making it get worse. And so my doctor was like, you need to have this surgery. And there was a 1% chance of paralysis because it's working with the spine and anything that works with the spine, there's a chance of paralysis. Typically it's fine. And so I went in, had the surgery, woke up paralyzed from the waist down. Doctors had no idea what happened. And apparently at one point they had woken me up during the surgery to make sure that I could move my legs and I couldn't. And then they put me back under and they had to undo a lot of the straightening. So my spine is still not straight at all. They fused my spine. A part of my spine is fused, so I can't turn very well. If people are behind me, I can't turn to see them. And also, they put a steel rod to hold up my spine. That's why I call myself a regimentary cyborg. Because of that, (laughs) I have steel in my spine. I was paralyzed. And basically, to make a long story short, they did not know if I would ever walk again. I did physical therapy anyway, and I come from a very, very driven family. That might be that Nigerian thing. Not once did anyone say that they didn't think I'd walk again. Not once, and it never crossed my mind. They were like, you are going to walk again. So that whole summer... I used the training that I learned through athletics to train, basically, and train myself back to walking. I had to learn how to walk again. So I went from being this mega athlete to paralyzed. It was during that the first two days of that. It took me a while to realize I was even paralyzed because of the morphine that I was on. Any kind of drug in my system, because I'm very imaginative and I've always been very imaginative, (laughs) causes massive hallucinations. (laughs) Massive. Oh my God. I was seeing huge praying mantises and grasshoppers (laughs) around my room for two days. days. It was your best dream ever. But it was weird. It was like, I didn't know what was going on. Oh no pink and green. And I'm like, oh my God, I couldn't think. It was just weird. It took me a while to realize I was paralyzed. But once I realized it, it was bad. And I I went through a very dark time because they took my parents being doctors knew to take me off of that morphine immediately. (laughs) They knew. They were like, no, this isn't good. So I had to deal with severe pain. And then also once all the hallucinations went away, I realized it's not just that I couldn't walk. It was half of my body had disappeared. It was gone. There was a line on my waist. Below that line was nothing. Above it was was myself. You do that to an athlete who can, movement is very easy. That is the recipe for madness right there. And I almost lost it. I remember the night I almost lost it. And instead of going down the dark path, I started writing these little stories to myself. Because there's something about the act of writing, the act of even producing the words on the page, and then imagining and creating that saved me. And that was how I started writing. From that point on, I have not stopped writing. That was really the road to it. And so that whole summer, 
I had to literally learn how to walk again. It was quite traumatic. By the end of that fall, I returned to campus because in my family, you don't take time off even when you're paralyzed. I returned to campus and a friend of mine looked at my writing. He looked at what I was, the little things I was writing. He's like, you should take a creative writing class. By that next semester, I returned to campus using a cane because my balance was very bad. By the next semester, I had stopped using the cane and I took that creative writing class, even though I did not even know what it was. It was only because the friend, I had a crush on him, whatever. Oh, that's, that's so oh, cute. Stupid. It was stupid. He still it takes credit cute. for my career. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to make a comment like that. He said it three days ago. <laughs> He called me up and was like, yeah, I'm reminding you. I was you like, know? congrats and everything, but you know it's going to yeah. be me, right? <laughs> yes, that's exactly what he said. <laughs> so I took the creative writing class and the rest is history. As soon as I learned what a story was, I was a big reader. That was the thing. I was an avid reader. So you know subconsciously how a story is, but when you take these classes and they kind of break it down for you, and I learned it there, and I, then I wrote my first story, oh, there was no turning back from there. I discovered my calling. It was instant. And by the next semester, I was writing my first novel. I changed my major and everything. Wow. Okay. So originally you were majoring in entomology. I was pre-med and I was going to go into entomology. I was at wow. U of I, really good entomology school. So it was all Dang. set up. Yep. Oh my gosh. So just from that one class and that was it, your life changed. Just like that. That is incredible. I don't blame your friend for calling. All right. Yeah. Knock, knock. <laughs> blame me, Remarkable story. And I'm so sorry you went through what you went through. I think you're so strong. I can't even imagine what that would have been like at all. I had a family dog. I saw him like my dear friend. I know it sounds funny, but I don't see them as pets. There was very mm -hmm. much family. Mm -hmm. Something mm -hmm. happened and he slipped his disc. A surgeon was trying to fix his spine, but accidentally paralyzed him from the waist down. Wow. We couldn't get him to walk again, uh, even though they said he needed some physical therapy. That was already hard on the family. And I just mm -hmm. can't imagine a human daughter and what that was like for your parents, even though I'm sure they yeah. came out very yeah. strong and were like, no, Nettie, you're still going to school. You're still going back to the semester. I don't care. But I'm sure behind closed doors, their heart was broken for you, especially because like you said, you were huge into sports. That was your life. Really, you are so incredible. I'm also curious, you know, when we talked about you being a bit like a protector, I feel like you would be that person I would probably gravitate towards in middle school and elementary school, like, please protect me and follow you <laughs> everywhere. What was that like? Were there kids that came up to you and were like, hey, can I be your friend? Or do you see someone getting all rude and up in yeah. people's faces and you stop them? Yeah, there was one in particular. It happened multiple times. It was on the tennis team and she was a year below me. At that time, my sisters had graduated. So I was the best one on the team because my sisters also were awesome tennis players. So it was wow. like the three, it was really cool. They bullied this one girl a lot and they don't want to be too specific in case people hear because right. you know things travel far but they bullied her a lot it's not that I rescued it wasn't like that it was that I took her under my wing and then stopped that because That's I liked amazing. her too she was nice and I don't really see what the all that I just didn't it, all that stupid drama yeah, yeah yeah you know how kids can be it always oh, yes like that whole nerd thing because for me I didn't belong to any group I always migrated from all groups from the popular kids to the nerds and I liked all of them so because of that I never understood the bullying it didn't make sense to me and it annoyed me and so I had that thing where if I in this position where I could stop that from happening I would but also it wasn't just that it was that I genuinely liked this girl I didn't understand why people were so mean to her it was just annoying you are so strong in school to recognize 
this is stupid. Why are people mm-hmm. picking on this person for no reason? Why do you think that is looking back on it now as an adult and having your own daughter? Do you think yeah. it has to do with perhaps your parents taking you to visit family in Nigeria and you realizing there's a world way bigger than yeah. school in America? I think it had everything to do with okay. it. I grew up in a, especially during grade school, in a very racist neighborhood. Really, wow. really racist. My sisters and I were lucky we were fast. We could run from these people. Story in itself is just that neighborhood, South Holland, Illinois in the 80s was mostly white. And we were one of the first black families to move into that neighborhood. So we were always dealing with people who tried to bully us. They were bigger than us. They were high school students. We were little, eight, nine and ten. And so there's one day where we were walking past this playground and there was a group of white high school students there. There were maybe four or five of them. I was with my sisters and we were eight, nine and ten. Where walking, they see us, we all made eye contact. And in that moment, we knew everything was about to change. They start chasing us down the sidewalk. I don't know what, oh why they were chasing us. We're running. My oldest sister's in the front. She makes a turn and goes between two houses and there's a gate there. So we were trapped by these kids. They chased us before, but they'd never caught us. This time they'd caught us. And so there was a moment where you just knew some violence was about to happen here. And what ended up happening was we all acted at the same time. My two older sisters turned around, ran to the fence, leaped over the fence, gone. What? Me, I went forward, dove through this boy's legs, (laughs) jumped to my feet, gone. (laughs) (laughs) When they couldn't figure out, like, okay, they went in two different directions. Who do we go? Where do we go? They kind of just gave up right then. That was what it was like growing up there. And then while we were dealing with all of that nonsense, And being American, basically, racism in America, black in America. Our parents were taking us back to Nigeria to meet family and connect. And so they're taking us to a whole country full of black people. You can go to Nigeria and not see any white people for the whole trip. It's easy. That's a black country. So to have those experiences very close together, because we'd go at Christmas and Easter and all of that, have those experiences, it just showed me very early that the world is diverse that there are many different types of people in the world. You go through the airport and you'd see all kinds of people. And then it's normal. When I look at people around me and see them judging, it just seemed like their world was really small. And that's mm-hmm. a phrase that I've been using a lot lately, this whole idea of people's worlds being small. Yes. So what is considered a nerd in this little group yes. is not a nerd. It yeah. doesn't have that same judgment outside of that group. Yes. And so I was able to see that very early. People around me were always people, different kinds of people. That hierarchy that lots of people like to ascribe to different groups and situations didn't exist with me. Yes. Wow. From your own thoughts, let's say parents who might be listening in, you know, who have kids, could be that the kids are bullies and they're trying to Mm -hmm. discipline them and say, this is not right, but then kids are not listening. Let's say uh, traveling is not a factor that they're capable of acquiring for their children. How do you think they can expose their children to a larger world? I think there are all kinds of travel. First of all, there's travel all the way to the other side of the world. There's travel that's outside of your town. There's travel to the market. There's travel. Any kind of travel, I think, is good. Any kind of exposure to different types of people, not just exposure, but interaction with different kinds of people. Yes. I think really travel across the world is extremely expensive. So, And some people don't have those means. You can go into different parts of your own neighborhood even and just yes. kind of show kids those different parts. That's something I think of with my daughter a lot. It's really important for me to get her around different kinds of people because she's in high school now and you know how clickish high school yes. can be. <laughs> yes, so very important, much. So important to understand that your world, 
even though your world is small and, and it's important to you as, you know, a little high school person, that the world is big. It's big. You know, I acknowledge their little world. I acknowledge that. <laughs> But there's more. There's yes. more beyond it. Just that knowledge is important. And I think movies are also a good one, too. They can take you to all these places in two hours. Some kids, it's hard to get them to read. So, of mm-hmm. course, book. But mm-hmm. if you're having trouble getting them to read movies as well, sit and watch the movies with your kids and then discuss That's always useful as well. I do that with my daughter a lot. Are there any movies that you have seen that you would love to share with our community that you think is a great topic sparker? I think uh, this is a little, fine, it's controversial, whatever. Moonlight, the the film Moonlight. I love Moonlight. Me too. That one made me cry. That one, especially if you're watching it with a teen, you have to watch it with the teen though. Don't just let your teen sit and watch that without you. Mm-hmm. Watch it with your teen yeah. because then you can explain all the parts because that movie was powerful. Yes, it was. The pacing is not the typical pacing. It's a little slower and it's very cinematic. It takes most teens out of their comfort zone in a way that's really useful. I would recommend Moonlight. And then I also recommend the Netflix show, 13 Reasons Why. Oh my gosh. You, did yeah. you watch the whole series? Yeah, I watched it with my daughter. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm not letting you watch that by yourself. Nope. I'm going to watch that with you. Even the uncomfortable parts, we're going to talk. Yes. And there was a lot of time on my hands, but I did it. I'm glad you did. And I'm sure you had a lot of important topics that you covered on and like yes. how if any time, if she needs help, how to get help and how to approach you and how to talk to you, that you're always going to be there for her. You sound like you're doing such an amazing job, seriously. I try. (laughs) I would love to also squeeze in when we're talking about all the story ideas that hit you and you never Mm -hmm. have writer's block. Mm -hmm. You write more subconsciously than consciously, I'm assuming. Yeah. Like you mentioned, you don't map things out. You don't specifically plan things. You write free flow. I know that you say you have to finish what you write. In that case, do you have to write in order of chapter one, two, three chronologically? Or are you able to do chapter three and then back to one, then 27? I'm a very nonlinear writer. Oh. I write backwards. I write inside out. I think Zara the Windseeker, I might have written from beginning to end, but that's the only one. Who Fears Death was written all over the place. I will write the scene that is most vivid. And it may be at the end. It may be near the middle or whatever, but it's a vivid scene. It'd be an exciting scene. And I'll write that because it's vivid and exciting. And then by the time I finish writing that, another part will shine. And then I'll write that. And I'll just jump around like that until I, and I know now, since I've written so many novels now, I intuitively know when something's done and I will string it all together and then edit that from beginning to end. Okay, so you intuitively string it. First of all, I know you're a professor. I'm just assuming it must be difficult to teach students specifically how to put the stories together. Are there specific tools? I know Scrivener is amazing. It's a wonderful software. But are there any techniques that help you? I don't know, index cards or a notebook where you just word vomit and put all your ideas down so that you don't forget certain things? It really depends. When it comes to word processing software, I just use Microsoft Word because I don't think there's no word processing software that can make writing easier. It's just (laughs) you use what you've got. I've written by hand. I've written by typewriter, manual typewriter. I've written, of course, on my laptop. I've written on my desktop. I'll write in different parts of the house, whatever it takes to get the story out. If it's coming in a nonlinear way, though, I'll write the scene and then plug it there. I'll know where the scene comes in if it's before that previous scene or after. And if it's before, I'll plug it before. If it's after, I'll put it after. And so there'll be all these spaces between scenes because that's I where I see. Yeah. 
it really high in where things are located in my head. Yeah. So I think I use that a lot. After editing something, I've proven this to my daughter. I've done it before where I can pick up one of my books and she'll say, find this word in the book. Two seconds later, I can find. I don't know what that is. It's like a superpower, but I can do it. And I don't know if I've edited the thing so many times I can imagine the whole thing is a three dimensional object in my head that I can find it. And so I think I use that when writing. I could see why you're about to go into the medical track. Yeah. (laughs) Would that be considered photographic memory? It's a level before that. That's awesome. Just to get a peek into how your brain works. When you're talking about editing, a lot of our listeners just finished National Novel Writing Month in NaNoWriMo. Some of them are so ecstatic and so happy. Even if they didn't feel like they reached the goal that everybody else is trying to reach, at least they reached their own goal of getting more words down than they had before November 1st. Mm -hmm. Very proud of them for that. But is there any words of wisdom or advice you can share about first drafts for those feeling a bit depressed about a crappy first draft. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. The first draft is a mess. <laughs> it is perfectly fine for it to be a piece of SHIT. <laughs> it's perfectly fine. That's good. First of all, it's easier to work with something than nothing. When you have something, even if it's garbage, you have something. That is huge. So there's yes. that. When I write a first draft, this is something I always say. When I write a first draft, I know that when I'm using Microsoft Word, that Microsoft Word will shut off its spell checker after a certain number of typos. I know this because when I'm writing a novel, it's so long. And when I'm writing, I don't correct anything. It's full of inconsistencies. So Microsoft Word is just like, oh, I can't take this anymore. (laughs) Microsoft Word gave up on you? (laughs) Yes. It does that every time I write a novel, every time. Because I don't go back and edit. One thing I've learned, because I've written how many novels at this point, one thing I've learned is that every writer has that voice in their head. And if you don't, you're lucky. But most writers have that voice in their head that's saying, this is terrible, this is terrible, this is terrible, this is terrible, as you're writing it. And when you finish, this is terrible. It's not terrible. Just ignore the voice, keep going. The first draft is supposed to be messy. If your first draft is immaculate, you are a genius and congratulations. (laughs) But for most of us, that first draft is garbage. And that's fine because that's usually how it starts off. I think it was Jeff Vandermeer's Wonder Book where they had an illustration of what a first draft looked like. And it was this illustration of this really messed up looking animal. It was jacked up on so many levels. It was poorly constructed. It looked sad and depressed and withered and just horrible. Now I'm really curious. I have to see this now. Oh, you must. The Wonder Book, every writer should have that book. One, it's beautiful and it's hilarious. And it has so much wonderful advice, especially for writers of imaginative literature. I highly recommend that book. That illustration was hilarious. And that's how a first draft looks. like this jiggling mess of nonsense with a withered leg here and a misshapen leg there and <laughs> uneven eyes and just if you polish it and polish it and polish it that's where the real writing happens in the editing process for those who have just finished their draft congratulations and go celebrate don't sit there being depressed go celebrate enjoy and then come back to that thing and then continue <laughs> i'm just imagining mr potato or something just putting all the different <laughs> things everywhere okay like after it's, it goes through like a cleaver getting smashing yeah, it all over the face there. okay and then melted down a little bit <laughs> or at least at the end it would have a beautiful dish of mashed potatoes exactly done and done all right this is something that i was never really aware of until our listeners were asking quite a lot of them i'm so proud of them that have gotten signed with literary agents and mm-hmm. they're at a phase where 
they're curious about how you go about choosing the right editor. I've been lucky with editors. With my very first novel, Czar the Windseeker, I had asked my agent to submit directly to a specific editor that I had known. I had gotten to know her over maybe two or three years, and I had watched who she worked with. She worked with the African-American speculative young adult writer, Virginia Hamilton. And so I knew, I'm like, oh, she worked with her? Oh, yeah, I want her to work with me. So I knew that that was who I wanted to work with. I wasn't sure if she would, but that was who I had my agent submit directly to. And it sold directly to that particular editor, Andrea Pinkney. So that's how that happened. And it was very lucky. It was just planets aligning. And then I had some difficulties with editors moving and not being able to be there. You may have an editor acquire your work, but what could happen, it doesn't happen often, but it happened multiple times to me, which is more times than normal. It's called orphan, where your editor that started off with you leaves the company for whatever reason. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. It's happened to me one, two, probably nearly seven or eight oh. times. A lot of them was for my second book. It was orphaned four times in a row. By the time we got to the fifth, that editor knew nothing about the book, nothing. So there are complications that happen. Okay, so this is a silly question. You can't request to be, no, I want to go where that editor goes because they know my vision. You can, but it's a lot of trouble. Okay, there's contracts and all that stuff, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah, there's uh... that. This was my second novel. I wasn't about to do that. I just wanted to focus on writing the thing and doing the best work that I could. It gets complicated. So a lot of times you won't get the editor that you want or you'll get the editor that you want or something might happen where you'll lose that editor. But after my second novel where all that orphaning happened and it happened with my first novel too, Andrea ended up leaving the publisher a month before my book came out. A month. (gasps) After those two situations happened to me, I knew I was like, I don't want to work with anyone who has not been at that publisher for a long time. I wasn't sure if I'd have a choice in that, but that was what I wanted. And so when Sharon November at Penguin was interested in Akata Witch, I knew she'd been there for many years. And I'm like, okay, that's a good one. That's a good one. Okay. So usually the longer they've been there, the more likely they're going to stay there for a while. Okay. I see. And then Who Fears Death, the editor, she's a daughter of Donald Wolheim, who started Daw in the first place. She's She's not not going to go anywhere. anywhere. Of course, her loyalty is to her dad. Wow. That's a whole other world I never even thought of. That also delays you with your writing because no one's coming back with you with notes. It delays, but it also complicates too because they'll come back with different notes things will shift but really i don't want to scare writers this isn't something to worry about until you have to worry about it that's my philosophy don't worry about it until you have to it's not a problem the problem doesn't exist until the problem exists i like that thinking it's true you just got to keep pushing with that forward movement or else you just get stuck there fearing everything in life and you're not going to go anywhere exactly thank you for sharing that and that is helpful for people when they do get to that bridge they'll worry about crossing it later (laughs) exactly have there ever been moments just from what i'm learning recently about working with editors let's say you love this editor you know this editor is amazing but you realize you really butt heads on one certain part of your book that you know you need it as like a puzzle piece, but your editor's like, nah, you gotta let it go. Not really. I've been, one, I've been lucky. Two, I'm the kind of writer who, when an editor comes at me with some kind of suggestion, I'll listen first. And sometimes, even if I disagree, I feel like I have to try it out. I feel editors have a skill set that I, as the writer, do not have. I'm typically very open to trying something out. But there was one little headbutt with Zara the Windseeker, where abilities to levitate manifest themselves right after she has her first period that night. And it's because of that, that ushered it in. I remember my editor suggesting 
that I remove that. And I was like, no. Do they give reasonings as to why they think you should remove it? Or they just write notes like, remove this? They were thinking about the male readers. Funny part. So was I. It stayed. (laughs) I'm glad that you put your foot down on that. I think this is wonderful, especially for a lot of listeners who are going to have their published books coming out soon. Yeah. We have Kate Larking. She wrote, Nettie is absolutely amazing. I have thought so since I met her in 2011 at the Sirens Conference. I find her economical use of language satisfying and validating. I would love to know if she ever struggled with developing and identifying her writing style and coming to peace with her own style versus those of her speculative fiction peers. That is a great question. What I think I was really privileged to have early on was I didn't identify myself as a speculative fiction writer until I went to Clarion, which was many years after I started writing. It's because I came up within academia. In academia, I was told not to write science fiction or fantasy. That was bad, bad, bad. I didn't know what to identify as for a long time. For me, for the first eight years where I started writing, I wasn't interested in getting published at all. I wasn't trying to get published. I didn't know to get published. I just wasn't interested in it. I just wrote for the love of writing. The privilege of that was that because I had those eight years, I was writing a lot. I was writing every day. I was writing many hours a day. This was before I had my daughter. I just was spitting out these novels. I was just writing them over and over. I think I wrote like five novels in that time and edited them and everything. And then I'd just go right on to the next one. That was really where I developed my own style. And it was because I was writing in a confined space, in a vacuum almost, where, of course, I was reading. I was always reading. But I wasn't putting, sending my stuff out to be judged by anybody. I was taking creative writing classes, but that was mainly about the craft. So I had those eight years. And within that eight years, I developed some. I wasn't trying. I was just writing for the joy of it. So because I had those eight years, when I started getting published and my name started getting out there and all of that, I had no problem distinguishing myself from other writers of speculative fiction. And also, when I read something, I read it as what it is. I don't do that thing where I'm like, okay, what is this like? How do I compare this? How do I make this similar to that? I just naturally never have done that. From the very beginning of reading, I never even looked at categories. I take a book as what it is. I still read like that. So when I look at there are other authors I'm often compared to, When I look at their work, I see zero similarity. I see zero similarities and I see them all as being very distinct with their own voice. That's how I move about. But that eight years, that eight years was really key for me. That was extremely valuable. Incredible. Thank you for that. The next one we have Yasmin Fisher. She says, oh my God, I'm blown away. She's so excited. (laughs) She wrote, we studied Nettie's book at university and I've been a huge fan ever since. Lots of heart emojis. My question (laughs) isn't exactly craft related, but maybe we can please ask Nettie. She says that she feels like you've been getting so much praise and has almost become a bit of a poster child for African sci-fi fantasy. And she thinks that's what people have been labeling your books as. Yasmin is wondering if this praise and success has increased the pressure on your future work and how it has impacted your writing life. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Increase the pressure. Not at all. Actually, it's done the exact opposite. It's exciting because when I wrote Binti, for example... When I wrote Binti, I knew I was writing what would be considered a space opera. And I was like, oh, my God, I don't even know if I'm doing this right. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. But I don't even know if people are going to understand what the heck I'm writing. I don't even know. When it received all of that love, 
when I wrote part two, I wrote it with more of a confidence where I'm, oh, okay, I do know how to do this. <laughs> it's just cool. And, and there are things that I've written, like Lagoon, that novel Lagoon was madness. And, and when I wrote it, I'm like, this is crazy. This is crazy. And I had so much fun writing it, but I remember worrying. I'm like, how are people going to take this? Are they just going to deem me as a nutcase? Because this is crazy. But people loved it. <laughs> they loved it. So I'm like, oh, okay, now I can let it out more. Yeah. Let it out more because I feel, oh, there are all these readers out there who like this stuff yes. and, and they get it and they yes. get it. And that's yes. so cool. I don't feel the pressure at all. If anything, you it's given you even more confidence to embrace yeah. it. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> So the rest are not questions, but I do want to share their excited love for you. Melody Simpson, she wrote, cannot wait for this one. And you know, the two hands up in the air, like preach that emoji, like yes. a million of those. She's so excited. <laughs> Melody's lovely. And we have John Chapelo who said, I am so excited for this episode. I absolutely adore her and her books. Lots ah. of exclamation marks. And then we have Catherine Locke who wrote all caps. Yes. With lots of S's <laughs> exclamation mark. She wrote that she loved Binti so much. And then we have Jennifer Brown, who wrote all caps. Oh, I cannot wait for this episode. (laughs) Now we finally have Megan England, who wrote, this is so exciting. I'm a young adult librarian and my teen book club will be reading Akata Witch next April as chosen by their vote with lots of exclamation marks. So our community loves you. I am so, so excited to share your episode with them. Nettie, I would love if we could wrap it up with our rapid fire questions. What are some small manageable steps you'd advise our listeners who are writers to take every week towards accomplishing their writing goals? I would say focus and write something. Don't worry too much about writing every day. Just relax and let it come. Don't pressure yourself about writing every day because you do not have to write every day. I think if you let it come, it will come in the way that it wants to come. Okay, so second to last question. I know you recommended The Wonder Book and you said that's magnificent for writers especially. Are there any other books that you can recommend about craft that has helped you or even books that have inspired you that you feel like our community can really take and learn from for their own writings? The other writing book, and there are only two, I don't recommend reading too many books about writing. When it comes to writing, nothing else can push you more than actually getting out and doing the writing. Wonder Book and Stephen King's On Writing, those two books are the best, in my opinion. What I love about Stephen King's on writing is that he does it to show you. The things that make that book the best are his storytelling. He tells you stories about himself. In telling you stories about himself, he's showing you how to storytell. That's why I highly recommend that. Just those. Amazing. That's helpful. Thank you for that. Okay, so third and final question. Why do you love Godzilla? (laughs) (laughs) I've been holding this one in for so long. (laughs) Oh, God, I love Godzilla. I do. (laughs) My dad does, too. You have no idea how many repeats and reruns we've watched. You just watch. You know my dad loves Pacific Rim. Yes, I love Pacific Rim. It was so, I auditioned for that role, and I did not get close. I was mortified. It was the worst (laughs) audition. They were asking me to be the only other Asian girl. I had to pretend to push my costume up and do something like going up the mountain with machinery, the robots. Yes, the the, the Jaeger. It looked like I was doing the Mambo or something. It was so (laughs) embarrassing. But yes, moving along. um, 
You love Godzilla. And do you have a favorite version of Godzilla? I like all of them. I like the original. It's just so, I don't know. For one thing, we know the political aspects to Godzilla. So there's that. I love the idea of this beast being linked to the behavior of human beings and their nuclear tendencies. So we've got that. On a level of this beast coming out of the water and then just just wreaking havoc. (laughs) (laughs) Destroying with rage and just killing things left and right. Stop. Being oh, everywhere. I love it. I, there's something so satisfying about this. I don't know what it is. Especially it being this beast, this giant beast who's just and just, just destroying everything. I love it. I can't get enough of that. Every Godzilla movie that comes out, I will watch it. Oh my gosh, Nettie, you were so awesome. You're pretty active on social media, yes? Because I know yeah. you have Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Do you feel like you're most active on Twitter? Is that where listeners should find you? They can find me in all three of those places. I'm active different ways. Awesome. We'll have that link up. And if you want to share your account, Facebook, I'm the only Nettie Okora for there. And then Twitter is just Nettie at Nettie. <laughs> I got that. <laughs> I was impressed that you got it. that. That's because I was on there when it first started. I didn't even know how to use it. You're so lucky that you got that. And Instagram, is that also the same thing? At Nettie? Yeah, Nettie Okorafor. I'm very easy to find. All right. So listeners, when you're listening, please say hi to Nettie and thank her for her time. And I'm sure you took a lot from her episode. Please find her and say hi and what's up. Nettie, you're awesome. And I'm going to let you go so you can continue the rest of your day. Thank you so much. This has been really fun. And that wraps up our episode with Nettie Okorafor and also the last episode of the year. Nettie, oh my God, I loved our conversation so much. Thank you for such a killer discussion and for being so kick-ass. It was such a joy having you on. Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in. As always, it's so insane that we wrapped up another year. You all are amazing. Thank you so much for listening in each week. Please say hi to Nettie on Twitter at Nettie and head over to her show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Nettie dash Okorafor. If you enjoyed today's episode or if it helped you in any way, I'd love to ask for your support in taking a moment to subscribe to 88 Cups of Tea on iTunes and please leave a rating and a review. Producing a podcast takes a lot of time and we put a lot of heart and soul into making 88 Cups of Tea the best that it can be. When you take those specific actions of subscribing, leaving a rating and a review that really helps our show become more visible to new listeners who haven't heard of us before, and we are trying to get the word out about our podcast. Thank you so much in advance for helping us grow our community. And don't forget to join our private Facebook group if you want to hang out with fellow writers and listeners from 88 Cups of Tea. I am so excited to see you in there. And also, if you're going to miss us during the hiatus, be sure to join us so you can keep in touch with us and also get updates on what's happening in my life and also uh, anything related to the podcast. So again, you can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. Have a wonderful and ridiculously productive January. And I cannot wait to catch you in February. Have a very happy new year. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.